This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. No matter where you are on your financial journey, banking with Police Bank means banking where you belong. Whether it's growing your savings, entering the workforce, buying your next home, or simply enjoying what life has to offer, Police Bank has a range of products to suit you at any stage of life. Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. This episode, a five-year murder investigation that spanned two continents. In 2018, a Brazilian national living in Sydney, Cecilia Haddad, was murdered by her estranged partner. The killer was also a Brazilian, Mario Marcello Santoro, and the day after the crime, he left for his homeland. Australia has no extradition treaty with Brazil, so Santoro might have believed he'd escaped justice. However, he didn't count on the dogged determination of New South Wales homicide detectives, who promised Cecilia's parents they would never give up the chase. Negotiating a very different legal system and language barriers, New South Wales detectives assisted their Brazilian counterparts to make Santoro accountable for his crime. And in June 2023, he confessed to the murder. This is the story of that investigation. My name is Hannah Packer. I'm a detective sergeant currently at the Sex Crime Squad. My name is John Edwards. I'm an inspector of police uh, currently attached to Campsie Police Area Command. And you two came together on a very particular job, the murder of Cecilia Haddad. How did your involvements begin? Um, So at the time, I was a detective sergeant at the Homicide Squad, and when Cecilia was uh, murdered, her body turned up uh, on uh, the beach at Angelo Street, Woolwich, and the local detectives uh, uh, investigated the matter, that is, Ride Eastwood detectives, and then at a point in an investigation, they will notify the Homicide Squad and call for assistance from us if they need to. And that's what happened. Uh, Hannah and I were the on-call detectives. Uh, So our team, Team 6 at Homicide, was on call. And when we got the call from the then Detective uh, Sergeant Michelle Matheson, uh, we went over to uh, Ride Police Station and and got involved in the investigation. So you've got a body in the Lane Cove River. Very good condition. What did the crime scene, or at least the, the remains, tell you about her possible demise? So, uh... At face value, all as we had uh, was a body in the river with uh, no marks, no obvious injuries. She had a couple of dive weights, a one kilo dive weight in each pocket. So in essence, there was nothing to suggest that it couldn't have been a suicide. So they had an unidentified body in the river, no real way of uh, determining whether there was foul play or not. Detectors by their nature assume everything is suspicious. But at the end of the day, they had nothing to hang their hat on. Uh, it could have been a simple suicide. So what were the critical pieces of evidence, Hannah, that, that led you to begin to believe that this was a murder, not a suicide? I guess it was, um, like John said, non-suspicious immediately based on the fact that she was so pristine and that there was no obvious signs of anything. I, I guess in that first few days of investigation, it's always about gathering information, that victimology about Cecilia. And we had so many people come forward to tell us about Cecilia, people from her old jobs, her best friends, that came forward to tell us a lot about Cecilia. And that's 
probably the main reason that we became sus suspicious about her behaviours. It was so out of character for Cecilia not to be returning phone calls and messages and failed to pick up her friend to go to the airport that, that really created that suspicion and fear that she'd met with foul play. Cecilia Haddad was Brazilian. She'd come to Australia in 2016. She'd worked in mining and logistics. Nothing else was really standing out that would give you any cause to believe that she might have taken her own life. But there was a person of interest very early on, her recently estranged boyfriend. Tell us about Mr. Santoro. Yeah, like you said, we everyone that told us about Cecilia, she was ambitious, she was successful, she was a businesswoman that was had um, so much going for her. She was well-loved. Um, but there was this person in her life that she knew from Brazil and she had told so many of her friends about the issues that she was having with Santoro um, and she was going to big extents to hide herself from him, block her mobile phone, you know, hide in her apartment to show that he, she wasn't home so that he couldn't come over. Mario Marcello Santoro, she'd known him since university. They'd been friends for a long period of time and then there'd been a relationship. What had happened with that relationship, John, that you could, that you could deduce at that early stage? Yeah, so as you say, uh, they had been friends from university, so uh, Cecilia and Santoro, but also uh, her ex-husband, Felipe. Um, there was quite a group of them together. So although he'd been interested in her for many, many years, she had got married and ultimately divorced, then rekindled the relationship at the end of 2016 on a trip to Brazil. Uh, and then he was infatuated with her. She was the, the woman of his dreams, to the point where he actually left Brazil, left his two young children behind and came to Australia. She was very happy with the relationship, um, except for immediately, like, ha having found the wo woman of his dreams and she was very successful, the way he treated her pushed her away. And that was the problem. And that came out very, very clearly. When we first got involved, we had an unidentified body on the beach. But as soon as we made the link between the missing persons report and the unidentified body, it was quite obvious that it was suspicious. All her friends were, were told us all about the breakdown of the relationship. It was initially 2017. And bearing in mind, we have access to her whole communications, WhatsApp, 5,000 WhatsApp messages. So we've got enormous detail about the relationship, the initial flowering of the relationship and the subsequent behaviour that she complained about, his possessiveness, his jealousy, his controlling behaviour, checking her phone, suspicion about uh, phone calls from any of her male colleagues, he would be suspicious. And of course, she's told all her friends about that to the point where on the 28th, when she didn't pick Kerry up from to take her to the airport, they were everybody was instantly worried. Uh, and so it was very obvious from the beginning. All her friends said, look at Santoro. Because Santoro didn't have a criminal background. He was an engineer. He was a middle-class guy. He didn't have anything, particular red flags. But he had some personality quirks, this, this desire for coercion and control. And you were seeing this, Hannah, through the text messages. It must be... I don't know what the right word is, poignant, sad, insightful. When you look into someone's life, you've seen a, 
a dead body and now you're seeing their life in the text messages. What unfolded for you when you read those text messages? Yeah, a lot, I guess, because Cecilia supported this person. She gave him a home to live in when he was in Australia. She gave him a business opportunity that he could make money. You know, she supported his visa. And then to see the way he treated her was quite upsetting because the amount of messages and then the fact that she would have to block him and then it would turn to emails. He used everything in his power to contact this person and constantly put her to fear. Like the things that she had to do and the things that she was staying with other friends and staying away for work and the things that she prevented herself from doing because of him and the fear that he was causing was extremely upsetting. This was going on while he was professing his love for her, while demonstrably abusing her and controlling and coercing her in these messages. What was her strategy to to get away from this? I guess people listening might say, well, she should have made a call to the police and so forth. But what, what, was the, what was the circumstance around her relationship that prevented her doing that? We can only go from the messages and the things we've heard now, but it was probably a few things. One, that they had a business together. She knew he was leaving. He had a plane trip booked back to Brazil a week later. So she had this constant thought that he was going to go and that's what she told her friends and it was documented in her phone. I've just got a week. I've just got a week to deal with this. And then the fear goes. He disappears. And I guess the, the fact that he was here on a visa, she was, she was actually caring for him in the fact that by going to the police, it, would, it could contradict or um, have issues for him staying in Australia. And she didn't want to do that. He was a friend, you know, she knew his family, she'd met his children, she knew his ex-wife. So she, I, don't, I think in her mind, she didn't want to see that he, he was capable of doing this to her. And I guess you, you could never suspect that this is what he was capable of. But he was. And the remains, as you said, they were pristine, there wasn't signs of anything, but, but obviously the forensic process took over and you started to work towards a cause of death. At what stage did that happen in the process? So on the Sunday, because uh, she was murdered on the Saturday, on the Sunday at 10.15 is when her body was located and it was still floating in the river. A couple who were kayaking found the body and... Uh, the, the, the woman has rung triple O uh, and her poor husband had to stand there in the water holding the body and then took advice from the triple O operators and brought it up onto shore. But um, So that was on the Sunday, almost at the same time. He's at the airport um, and we've got video footage of him on the phone, literally as you're about to step in the door to the plane, telling lies to some of his clients about what was happening. And so that was where we stood on the, the Sunday by the Monday, it became quite obvious that uh, she had been killed, but we had no cause of death. And we also didn't have her formally identified. So we had a body, which we believed was Cecilia, but no formal identification process. So we had to go through firstly, a, uh, because we couldn't get the post-mortem done on the, on the Tuesday, uh, we, we had to do a photo identification process and got her ex-husband, Felipe, uh, and a friend, Ebony to identify her from photographs. Then we did the got the formal autopsy done, and that then gave us a uh, a cause of death. Now it takes a long time to get before you get the formal autopsy report, but during the autopsy process, it, it became quite clear that 
And he used the term uh, manual strangulation and neck compression. So it became quite clear how she had died. The uh, issue was then really just um, the actual mechanism, how, how was she choked? So we had a cause of death at that stage. And then, of course, after the autopsy, we can then go through the formal pro uh, identification procedure of getting, you know, her uh, ex-husband and then her family as by that stage were over here to come and look at the body and formally identify and make that link that the dead body is Cecilia Haddad. So you've got a cause of death now and you also have evidence linking your person of interest to both the location where she was murdered and also where her body was dumped. How did that take place? We were able to get call charge records for his mobile phone um, and then be able to track his movement. So additionally to the, the cell towers and the records that we were able to locate, we also do canvassing. So camera footage, we systematically break down the streets, we walk the streets trying to look for CCTV footage to, to carry these movements, whether it be by phone records or vehicles that he was used. And ultimately we, we were able to work out that he used Cecilia's vehicle to dump her body. That car was quite specific. It was a red Fiat. It had quite distinguishing features. So as a police investigation, it's pretty easy to track a vehicle like that. Um, so between cameras and cell towers, we were able to track those movements. And lo and behold, the, the movements of his phone identified that he'd, he'd gone to the Woolwich area on the night of the 28th. Um, so Cecilia was, we believe, killed around 10am on the 28th and we would say that he would wait for dark hours, wait for, you know, less people, a, a location suitable to dump her body um, and where he went was um, a little peninsula area in Woolwich. Um, lucky for the police investigation, the way to travel to that area, he would have had to go past a camera. There's one road in and one road out and between, I think it was 7.06 and 7.16, that 10 minute gap, he was down in that peninsula where she was ultimately located. Very strong physical evidence, circumstantial evidence, um, locating him there and so on and so forth. But the problem is he's in Brazil now and Brazil does not extradite its citizens for whatever reason, go right, right back to Ronnie Biggs and the great train robbery to, to know that. Um, I think a lot of people would say, gee, what do we do now? Must have been a moment where you think, has this bloke gotten away? Or was there always a confidence that you could actually work through the issues with the Brazil authorities to get this done? Yeah, so very, very quickly, um, we took out, uh, the process is to take out a local arrest warrant and then get that converted into an Interpol red notice. So an international arrest warrant. And that was uh, done by, I, I believe, the 12th of June. So we put that in process. So wherever he was in the world, if he left Brazil, um, we could have him grabbed. We, we did certainly get told early in the piece that they don't extradite. Uh, and of course, then it's a matter of exploring through the Attorney General's Department and uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, confirming that that is the case, that they actually will not extradite him. And so that, was a, that diplomatic process took quite some time. We took out the International Red Notice, the International Interpol Arrest Warrant, and he was then arrested by them locally, not on our international warrant, in July. 
And it wasn't until November that they come to the position that they will not extradite, but they would try him in Brazil for an offence that happened in Australia. So the New South Wales police instantly changed tack and, and, and said we are 100% behind the prosecution in Brazil. You're English speaking, they're Portuguese speaking. Were there any issues on communication early on? <laughs> there certainly were. We, uh, so we travelled over there. We have no Portuguese whatsoever. A superintendent from the Australian Federal Police travelled down from Mexico. He spoke Spanish, which was somewhat useful, but the Brazilian Federal Police also gave us a police officer. So we were there for about a week in November 2018, and the Brazilian Federal Police officer was worth his weight in gold. He, he spoke quite good English and was, at the end of the day, our translator. And yes, the, the Brazilian Federal Policeman was great. This is a murder 14,000 kilometres away from Brazil. In normal circumstances, I think you might struggle to get cooperation, but I wonder whether the fact that there was a Brazilian national who was murdered by a Brazilian national, that helped your cause, do you think? Yeah, I think it definitely did. I think, the, I think that was one of the reasons that they took it on board. And obviously her father and her now stepmother were very passionate about it. And I think they were behind this fight for Cecilia as well. You know, they're from Brazil and able to be on the ground and support that prosecution. Whilst we're 14,000 k's away, they, you know, were pressing the point over there as well. So we had it from both angles. How did you handle that question of dealing with the family in, in what would be a long process? Yeah, I guess just like that, like, you know, coming from the homicide squad, we investigate murders all the time. They are long drawn out investigations. You can't expect things to happen overnight. Court systems take long. That happens in Australia as well. So us not knowing the Brazilian system, we had to keep preparing them for how long it would be. We don't know how it works, you know, just preparing them for the process that may be endless. You know, we are so used to the judicial system here, but then trying to understand it in Brazil is obviously another barrier to us, especially when you're managing the expectations of a family and her friends that are so passionate about her death. This case would take longer than anyone expected. We'll return to the prosecution of Mario Marcello Santoro soon after these messages from our sponsors. Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account is available for members aged between 18 to 29 and is one of the most accessible high interest saving accounts on the market. This is more than a savings or everyday account as there are no ongoing fees and a high interest rate of 5.25% per annum. Whether it's a holiday with friends, a deposit on your first home or even a new car, get ahead with Police Bank's U30 Supercharge account. Eligibility criteria applies. Rates are current and subject to change at any time without notice. Please see the terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This segment is proudly sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police, and law enforcement. And it took five years. Did you think it would take that long? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> not at all. But at the end of the day, it, it took that long because of his choices. We kept contact over the years because of the court moved from the state court to the federal court uh, because that was more appropriate because uh, the crime occurred in Australia. And at one point, he was... Uh, regularly trying to get out on bail because he was incarcerated for the whole time. 
uh, immediately they started their local investigation. They have the decision as whether he should be out on bail. Uh, he was refused bail and regularly asked for bail. And at one point, uh, I remember the, uh, the family lawyer contacted me. She was a great uh, source of information for us because in their system, the family can have a lawyer in a criminal court as well. So there's not only the prosecutor and the defence attorney, the family have a what is called an assistant prosecutor. What made it quite drawn out is the fact that he kept fighting to move it from one court to another to legal arguments all along the way. We spoke to the mother, so that the dad and stepmother travelled to Australia, but we had spoken to, to Cecilia's mum on the phone. But in November, we met with her, and she was crucial because she was on the phone to Cecilia. That's our cause of death. The pathologist could not give us a time of death, but she was talking to her mother at the time on WhatsApp. We got the time of death from people she was talking with. She was multitasking. She's on a WhatsApp phone call with mum for you know, an hour and a half. She's texting other people, she's texting mum, and suddenly that came to a, a dramatic halt. 10.04 and 10.07, her mum sends her a message that she doesn't read. And so that's how we've got our time of death. So uh, her mother became a crucial witness and we were blessed to have our intelligence analyst on the job it was Portuguese. Um, so it, it, uh, it was fantastic. She was a homicide intelligence analyst, spoke Portuguese, so, so that, that just made the investigation so much better. And she, of course, travelled in January 2018 to give evidence, but then when the trial was put off, uh, you know, she wasn't able to travel back in June. It finally gets to trial in June. You both go, go across from Sydney to Rio de Janeiro? Yes. Fully contested trial coming up. Was there part of you that thought, gee, if this was at home, this would be a pretty much a lay down misere, but we're in a different jurisdiction. You don't know what can happen. Were there some doubts creeping in at all? Yeah, like the doubts were more about the understanding of their court system and how different it was to ours. You know, the amount of information that we had in statement format and evidence would often take weeks and months for us to happen in a New South Wales court. In Brazil, we were told it would be one day, two days that everyone gets five witnesses, they're important witnesses to give evidence. And that's just so different to the way we would do it in Australia. Not only that, you know, we, the amount of murders that they get a year compared to us is astronomical. So I guess for us, it was more that understanding how much time they'd give us, how much, you know, this is a job that we're super passionate about and fighting for Cecilia's rights and all that kind of stuff. So I guess for us, it was more about the understanding of their court system. The whole system was very different. Like you've got the media out the back videoing everything. The media were actually doing media stand-ups as people were giving evidence. It was just very different. And so many things like we, we would never be allowed as police officers to give opinion evidence. And yet they do over there. It was, you, you, you have to back it up, of course, but uh, that's what they asked us at the end of it. You know, what was the conclusion of the Australian investigation? And we were able to sort of outline the evidence and say, for that reason, I believe that Santoro killed her uh, and, and the mechanism of, of how he killed her. Um, so that was very different. Hannah, you've been creating a, a profile of Santoro through these years, through text messages, through other people's testimony. You're now seeing him in the court. Mm. Remember your impressions of him? Um, surprisingly very normal to sit a metre away from someone that you know that is capable of doing such a thing is quite a bizarre thing. 
But I guess we're used to that in homicide investigations. By the time we get to meet these people that we've investigated, and, you know, again, like I said, these investigations can run for years and months and a long time. So that often by the time you get to meet this person, but he presented as someone that was pretty quiet throughout the court system. He was sat there quite diligently, um, looked clean-dressed, you know, not someone that you'd expect coming out of a Brazilian jail. That's the thing, isn't it? Murder, I guess, is part of the human psyche, that violence that lives within us. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily correspond to monsters or perceptions of people. It can be a simple domestic situation that ends up in a tragic outcome. So going in there, you're not expecting a confession. That's the last thing you're expecting. He's held out for five years. What was the first inkling that, that there might be something like this about to happen? I guess it was the way that his defence presented the evidence. Uh, so the prosecution had uh, given evidence that he, he confessed to a Brazilian uh, homicide detective, and that was contested but allowed in. But then as uh, Santoro's witnesses came in, two of them said that he confessed to them. And then we had spoken about uh, the issue with the prosecutor beforehand, and he said, well, even if he wants to confess, we will still go through all the police evidence and he can he can get in the witness box and confess if he wants. So, you know, it wasn't, it was just one of those things. We didn't know whether it would happen or not, but it was a possibility, given the overwhelming amount of evidence that he faced, that he might put forward a confession to try and get uh, some sort of leniency or a, a plea for understanding. And suddenly you see the facade crack. He begins to cry. Yeah, look, I in my opinion, he it was all rehearsed. He was backed into a corner. He had no choice but to say something. You know, the jury was never gonna be able to believe with all the evidence that we'd presented over those couple of days. In my opinion, he had to say something. And the opinion is also that what he tried to do was mitigate his involvement in Cecilia's death by telling us the story and giving us this character reference of tears and how sad he was. Just played into his role in trying to mitigate and win over that jury to believe that he didn't mean to do it and it was just an accidental death where we say it's completely the opposite. Well, indeed, because he, his confession included that he grabbed her around the throat, held her tightly, and then she was dead almost instantly, according to his testimony. But the critical thing was he didn't render any assistance whatsoever. No, he didn't. And, you know, and the medical evidence and the post-mortem report and all the evidence that we had about her death is very contradictory to his story. And so after his confession, I guess we still had a big fight on our hands for the jury to understand that that's not physically possible. His story does not make sense. And so, you know, the hours of submissions by the prosecutor obviously, you know, helped the jury to understand that his, his version just wasn't viable. Nonetheless, a big moment. You're in a foreign court, your only mates from New South Wales are sitting near you. Was there a moment where you connected and, and acknowledged this this moment? Absolutely. It was, uh, yeah, it was quite striking seeing him in there uh, with his tears, be they crocodile tears or otherwise, and it was just the, the three of us sitting there in the court. It was, yeah, yeah. it was terrific to hear him actually acknowledge it. Uh, I mean, we knew he'd done it. Uh, everything he confessed to was exactly the police brief of evidence um, and anything we didn't know, he either didn't confess to or lied about. So it was just nice to to have that acknowledgement from him, yes, I've killed her. 
Yeah. And for the family, I guess it's really nice for them to hear, like, although the police have been, you know, confident for all these years and given them all the support that they need, for, for them to hear and finally have answers about her last few minutes, I think, you know, they really appreciated in a sad way that they finally got some answers and it came from his mouth. It's very, it's bizarre and something that we don't see very often. It must also be a great sense of satisfaction that when you make promises to a family that you'll follow through to the end, and it's not always possible, the baddies sometimes do get away, but there must be a great sense of personal pride when you get through a very complex matter like this and you get to the result that is a just one. Oh, there absolutely is. It's, it's the reason we do this job, you know. Sadly, there's families that don't have the answers, but, you know, we're very proud to have represented New South Wales, but also Cecilia and her family to be able to give them answers and, you know, does it bring her back? It doesn't, but at least they, you know, see that justice has been served. What did Santoro end up being sentenced to? Um, so he, uh, overall, he got 27 years in jail. Now, they gave him a one-year discount for his very last-minute confession and the judge said, well, you didn't confess to the police or anywhere along, you waited the last minute. But it's 27 years, he got 22 years for her, her, I guess aggravated murder would be the best translation. They called it a triple qualified murder, but aggravated murder, 22 years, and five years on top for disposing of, uh, of her corpse. Really a, a terif- terrific milestone in, in overseas investigations. What did New South Wales Police learn about dealing in jurisdictions where there isn't extradition, where systems are very different, language is different? What, what did we learn about from this case? Um, I guess at, at the end of the day, we, we were overprepared and that was the best uh, way we could have dealt with it is that you need to be over-prepared. You just don't know how much you're going to need over there. So one of the big things was the, the, the translation difficulties. That, that was quite significant whilst giving evidence, the, the, the difficulty of translating. Uh, the importance, because their, um, the amount of time that they have available to investigate and prosecute is so limited, the importance of actually Australia providing information in their own language so that they miss nothing. We- now, you've both moved on from homicide, but this is a homicide job that you won't forget. What are you doing now, Hannah? I now work for the Sex Crime Squad. So I got promoted in December, so now I'm Detective Sergeant at the Sex Crime Squad. Well done. It just shows that when you move jobs in the police, you don't leave them behind, these cases like this. You bring them with you. You got any more? I certainly do. Um, and my boss would attest to that. She's probably laughing at me right now. You do. You you carry these jobs for years and, you, you know, I'm not going to say you can't get rid of them, but it's the passion that makes you want to do it, the drive for these families and finding answers. It's something that you just, you do. Like I spent eight years at Homicide and you just, the, the job never stops. And John, you're in uniform. Yes, took a promotion back to uniform, so I'm an inspector now at Campsie, which is a, a great little part of the world, very multi- multicultural, and it's, it's certainly different from being a detective inspector at Homicide, but uh, uh, equally rewarding. Yeah, and I'm sure you, you're telling some of the kids in the watch house about the time I went to Brazil to, to, to nab the murderer. Uh, absolutely. It's funny that one week I'm sort of doing RBT in, in Campsie and the next week I'm on television over in Brazil sort of thing, so it's, uh, yes... 
provided some entertainment for the crew anyway. Fantastic. Listen, thanks for your time today and thanks for your dedication to the job and your service to the people of New South Wales. This has been a fantastic job. We thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. That was Detective Sergeant Hannah Packer and Detective Inspector John Edwards on their fight to bring a killer to justice. Next time on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, taking the fight to cyber criminals. Inside the New South Wales Police Force is a Real Crime Australia production in association with the New South Wales Police Force. The host producer is Adam Shand. Editing and imaging by Matt Dwyer. For New South Wales Police, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Senior Constable Ashley Bold and Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. This podcast is also proudly brought to you by Charles Sturt University, providing education for the New South Wales Police Force and law enforcement worldwide for over 30 years. Do you want to become a cop? or further your policing career, we can help. Visit csu.edu.au forward slash policing to learn more.